as I chose the hymns uh, for this morning, certain words stuck out to me as I looked at these hymns. This is usually sung at the end of a, of a message, not at the beginning. But I want to just read a couple words to you here. Just as I am without one plea, there's, what is going to get me into heaven? Nothing good that I have done, only what he has done. What is my plea? The one plea I have, Lord Jesus, your blood was shed for me on the cross of Calvary. That would be the only reason I would gain entrance to heaven is because, what if he, because of what he has done for me. The last line of the uh, song is also appropriate. Now to be thine, yea, thine alone. It's a very sweet phrase. Um, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. I think of it in terms of a marriage. I think of it in terms of a, um, a relationship that we have with God. And it's, it's interesting to me that the um, church is described as the bride of Christ and that he has gone to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be also. And he's longing for us to be with him. But as a bride, we are to, he said that he is going to present to himself a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And uh, we are called to live in a way in our life of, of holiness and righteousness and uh, in love with the Lord Jesus. Well, we come to James chapter 4 this morning. And before we read our passage, it's a new chapter. I want to read one verse from last week's message that Sam gave to us, and it's verse 18. It says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And actually, in the last two verses, you'll see that uh, three times in the last two verses, we had a form of the word peace. But as we turn to chapter 4 and we read verse 1, peace is shattered by war. And it reminds me of what the prophet Jeremiah said, peace, peace, but there is no peace. So let's take a look at James chapter 4. We'll read just a few verses at a time, comment on them, and then move on to the rest. We're going to take the first 10 10 verses um, today, Lord willing. It says, where, James says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. James chapter 4 is probably one of the most uncomfortable chapters in all of the Bible. And James speaks very frankly here. He begins by asking a penetrating question, where do wars and fights come from? And you can say, well, I know the answer to that. We might be quick to say that war is caused by the greed of nations who seek to gain something from another nation. Uh, more power, more glory, more control over people, more land, they, uh, or more resources, or they want to control trade. 
Wars may come from an elevated view of one's own race or one's own country, one people group over another, and that may result in what is often called ethnic cleansing. War may come from envy over what another nation has, and people, nations go to, to war over things like this. So we want to look at the cause of war, because J- James is actually not talking about world wars here. He is not talking about revolutions or military battles. Rather, he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? And he's talking to believers, and he's saying, why are you fighting with each other? Why are you fighting? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So we see, first of all, that wars come from our desire for pleasure. We lust for pleasure. We are not content with the things that we have. We want more. You know, it's like this. We used to be satisfied that we had a paycheck at all, that we had a job. Now we want a lottery check. Once upon a time, we were content with bread and butter or bread and jam. Now only gourmet meals will do. At one time, we were content with thrift town hand-me-downs. Now we demand name-brand clothing. And we used to be happy with the simple things that God gave to us. And now, even though we have far more than we did, and certainly far more than we deserve, we complain and we grumble and we are not satisfied. Let me tell you something, believers. Prosperity is more likely a test than it is a blessing. Prosperity is more likely a test than a blessing. You will remember the children of Israel were fed in the wilderness for 40 years by God. And it was a daily provision from the Lord. He caused manna to come down every, every morning so that the Israelites could go out and gather their daily need, for their daily needs, their daily provision. And after a while, they got sick of it said, enough of this light food, this loathsome food. They complained and they grumbled. Even though God was miraculously feeding them in a desert for 40 years. And in Numbers chapter 11, it says, they lusted for meat and despised the manna that God had given them. It says this, we remember the fish we ate freely in Egypt. Freely. They were slaves. We remember the fish we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. What is manna? Psalm 78 says that manna is actually angel's food. That's the first angel's food cake that anybody ever ate. Their complaint shows dissatisfaction with God's provision. And so they lusted for meat. They were tired of this daily provision of manna. They wanted more. How about you? Are you satisfied with what God gives to you daily? Are you growing dissatisfied with God's daily provision for you? Are you lusting for more? My brothers and sisters, be careful what you want. 
Why do I say that? Well, in Psalm 78, verses 26 through 29, it says this, He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens. This is when they complained about the food, the manna. And by his power, he brought the south wind. He also rained meat on them like dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the seas. And he made them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. So they ate and were well filled, for he gave them their own desire. You say, wow, they got food, good. They got the meat they were asking for, not good. Psalm 106, 14, 15 says this, but they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert, and he gave them their request, but sent leanness to their souls. God sent, a, it says, when their mouth was full, when they had eaten it all after a month of this, God sent a plague, um, a severe disease among them because they were complaining against his daily provision. They also rejected the leadership God placed over them. They were envious of Moses and of Aaron. In Psalm 106, 16, it says, when they envied Moses in the camp and Aaron, the saints of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. You know, from time to time, companies take an inventory. Usually it's at the end of the year. They want to see where they stand with inventory. Do they have everything that it says they have on the books? And it's, in, it's healthy for us to take an inventory of our own lives. The greatest danger of falling into sin is not when you are poor and when you are dependent upon the Lord and upon His daily provision, but when we have it all and when we have no needs, that is the time of danger of falling into sin. That's when we forget the Lord. Do you remember the, the occasion when um, they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and God promised them that they were now going to go into the promised land? And Moses had one last warning before the children of Israel went into the land of promise. And this is what it was in Deuteronomy 6, 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large... Let me rephrase it. Let me, let me pause and say that again. To give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build... Houses full of all good things, which you did not fill. Hewn out wells, which you did not dig. Vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. It is time for us to take inventory of our lives. Can I ask you a question? It's personal. Have you forgotten the Lord your God who has delivered you from the house of bondage? What was that? We weren't in Egypt. We were in the bondage of our own sin. Have you forgotten that? It's easy, you know, to say, well, Lord, when, when we were first saved, it was like the Lord was wooing us. It was a love relationship. We wanted to be with Him. We wanted our sins forgiven. We wanted all of the blessings that God was offering to us, and we took freely 
from him and said, yes, Lord, I want to be yours. I want you to be mine. I want everything that you have to offer me. Lord, I humbly bow before you. I say I do. Yes. And then we get used to the relationship we have with the Lord, and we forget. We forget the bondage that we were once in. Remember where you came from. Remember what you uh, were involved in and all that the Lord has given to you. You know, I've talked to people over the years, married couples over the years, who have grown distant in their marriage relationship, and there seems to be a common thread in all of them. They look back at the beginning of their relationship when love was tender, love was affectionate, love was strong in the relationship, and they inevitably say, you know, we had nothing. We had nothing. We had a mattress on the floor. We had cardboard boxes for a table. We had borrowed furniture to fill our apartment, but we had each other, and we had love, and love was enough. But then you ask them after five years or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or more, and their answer betrays a lack of contentment. And I hear things like this, how's your relationship now? Well, our house is paid off. We have a cabin in the mountains, two new cars in the garage, a closet full of clothes. We eat out at the finest restaurants. We take exotic vacations, but it seems like we are ships passing in the night. Our marriage is falling apart. We don't communicate. We have it all, but we still want more. At one time, we were happy to just have food on the table. Now we fight all the time over money and possessions, and the love is gone. We thought that the accumulation of all of these things would bring us more happy, but we are miserable, and we still want more. Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes, after having it all, trying it all, feeling it all, experiencing it all, And in the end, he said that everything that the world has to offer is vanity, it's emptiness, it's useless. And all that the world has to offer will never, ever satisfy. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 12 says this, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You say you're forsaking the Lord your God and going after something that your heart desires, but it will never, ever satisfy. It's inventory time. Are you satisfied with everything that God has given you? Or are you lusting and craving and desiring more? In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, it says this, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I don't know if you see the connection between what he is saying about himself and what he said earlier. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. 
what things do we have? For he himself says, I will never leave you or forsake you. What he's saying is this. You have me. You have everything you need. You have me. God is saying, you've got it all. Why are you pursuing covetousness, desiring more things and more um, for yourself? When we long for something we don't have, it's called covetousness. Covetousness is the insatiable desire for things that are forbidden or, or things that are not ours. Eve is an example. She coveted. She saw the fruit that it was good to eat and was able to make her wise, and she took the forbidden fruit. You know, even in the law, God talks about this. Exodus 20, verse 17, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Covetousness says, I am not satisfied with the things that I have, and I'm not satisfied with the people that God has placed in my life. I deserve better than this. I deserve more. I deserve what I want, and I will go to whatever extent it takes to get it. Wars and fights. Wars and fights come from our murdering, coveting hearts. That's what James says. Very bold in what he says. Where do wars come and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not What terrible stories we find in the Bible associated with covetousness, murder, lust. First Kings 21, Naboth had a vineyard. He was a man who had a large vineyard. And King Ahab, King Ahab looked at it and says, I want that land. I want that to be mine. And he coveted that land. And he went out to Naboth and he said, I want to buy your land. I want to have your land. And Naboth says, no, you can't have my land. That's my family's land. And it's the family's inheritance. It will be passed on for generations. No, you cannot have my land. And, and King Ahab went back to uh, the palace and he rolled up in his bed and he wept and cried and whimpered like a, you know, whipped puppy. And his wife, the godless Jezebel, comes in and says, I'll take care of it. You don't worry. You just watch. And she plotted and connived and had Naboth killed and executed. She executed the murder of Naboth. The sins of covetousness and murder go hand in hand. Michael mentioned something in class here about David, King David. David one day looked through the lattice work at his palace in the evening, and he looked down and he saw a woman bathing uh, on her rooftop. And uh, a beautiful woman, he lusted for her in his heart, he coveted his neighbor's wife, and then he took her and he committed adultery with her, and he murdered her husband, Uriah. Covetousness, adultery, murder, they are all very, very closely linked. We look over the aisle at what our brother or sister has, 
Or you look over the aisle at your brothers and sisters on this side, and you look at their vineyard. You say, well, they don't have a vineyard. Well, you look at their land. You look at their house. You look at their car. You look at their possessions. You look at their relationships. And we desire to have it all. If they can have it, I want it. No, I want more than they have. And that's the lust. That's the desire. That's the covetousness at work. And this desire intensifies until it becomes a consuming passion. And we want it. That's lust. We do not have it. We covet. And some will even murder to get it. Murder here may be literal. Somebody actually being killed over the desire. Or it may be murder in our hearts. Hatred in our hearts. That they have something that I don't have. And Jesus said that hatred in our heart is equivalent It's the seed of murder. It's the root, if you will. And this murder or this war in our hearts has serious consequences. James says in the end of verse 2, you you do not have because you do not ask. You know, I think it's true that we often don't have because we simply don't pray. We simply don't ask. We We simply don't bring our needs to the Lord. And so we do not have because we do not ask. We would rather fight and fret and complain about what we don't have and we should have and what we deserve that we never even bring it to the Lord. Rather than humbling ourselves and seeking God's will instead of our pleasure, we are impatient. We say, Lord, I want this and I want it now. Please give me patience. Yesterday, you know, that kind of idea. We want things, Lord, why can't I have this? Why can't I be married? Why can't I have a better education? Why can't I have a college degree? Why can't I have a better job? Why can't I have a better car? Why can't I have a better house? Why can't I? And we do this. And we're saying to the Lord, I'm not satisfied with anything you've given to me. And rather than being patient and waiting for God's best for our lives, we take matters into our own hands. And if we spent that time of plotting and planning and possessing In prayer, instead, we probably have more. Do you remember what God said to David after he took Bathsheba? And uh, he was unrepentant up until this time. And and, and, uh, Nathan told him a story. And David was very quick to to judge and condemn the man who had taken the, the little sheep. And Nathan took his bony little finger and pointed it right under David's nose and said, You are the man. I'm talking about you. You are the man. And then this is what he said in this passage. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. Look at what I've given you. I've given you the kingdom over Israel. And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I've taken away your enemies. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more, he says. Wow. You have not because you ask not. We deceive ourselves into thinking that God is somehow withholding from us what we deserve. And yet the Bible very clearly tells us that he gives us everything we need. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need, the Bible says. 
Do not be deceived, my brethren. James tells us this in James chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. You know, God wants to give. That's in His nature. He is a giving, loving, generous God. And the gifts He gives are good gifts. Proverbs 10.22 says this, The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and He adds no sorrow with it. That's the kind of gift we want. The blessing of the Lord with no sorrow that comes along with us doing it our way and seeking our own will. Someone will argue, well, I do pray. You're saying you have not because you do not ask. I ask all the time. I do pray. And what is the use of asking him when I don't get the answers I'm looking for? Well, James gives the answer to a barren prayer life in verse 3. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. What does that mean? You're, you're, you're missing the point in your prayer. You're asking the wrong, for the wrong thing or you're asking in the wrong way. You're asking amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but the word pleasures here is, in Greek, hedonai. What do you think that might mean in English? Hedonism. That's where we get our word hedonism from. And what is hedonism? Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, sensual self-indulgence, or self-gratification. Hedonism is centered on me, itself. It's all about what I want. It's all about what makes me feel good. It's all about how I can please myself. So when you're praying, are you praying for things that will only satisfy you, or do you really, in your prayers, is your focus on others? Is your focus on how Lord, answer this prayer that it might be a blessing to others and that it might be a blessing to you. That's the way we should pray. Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? You see, God is not your personal genie. We don't just rub a lantern and say, oh, by the way, Lord, this is my need right now. Just, you know, fill this need. Thanks very much. When I need you, I'll just put you back on the shelf for now. But when I need you, I'll call you again. He's not our personal genie. Are you more concerned about the needs of others than about yourself? We're actually called um, in Scripture to be more concerned with others than ourselves. Paul writes in Philippians 2, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. War. We're in a war. We're in a battle. And the battle rages internally. And there are consequences to this war in verses 4 through 6. And James really strikes at the heart of the issue here. But before we read this, I want to just say this again to you. When you first came to know the Lord, it was a love affair. And it was a good one. You were in Satan's domain. You were 
captivated by him. He was your master. He was your husband, if you will. You were in a very, very rotten relationship. In fact, it's the most abusive relationship ever. That's the kind of relationship you were in. You were unsaved in your sin, and the Lord saw you, and the Lord loved you. The Lord loved you so much that he said, my blood for them. And he went to the cross and he took the pain and he took the suffering and he took the punishment of God for your sins that you might be saved and that you might be able to enter into a relationship with him. The Bible says that we who are part of the church are the bride of Christ. We have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ as our husband, shall we say, and we are his bride. We're married. We're married. That's what makes this next section so poignant. James says, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know? It's, it's incredible to him. He's asking it in that way. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? I think the best way to illustrate this is with a, a, a true story. I once knew a man who was the office manager of a Christian ministry, and I knew him because he used to order books from us for that ministry. And as far as I knew, he was a a very conservative, God-fearing family man. The conversations I had with him on the phone would suggest nothing but that. From all accounts, he was married to a lovely wife. He had loving children. He appeared to be a fine, upstanding gentleman, but he had a secret life, hidden from his co-workers, his friends, and his family. He hid behind a religious facade. He would go to church, wear a smile, shake hands, lead Bible studies, and all at the same time, he lived a secret life of lies and deception, adultery, and murder. And as we read in James in this in these verses, I can't help but think about the war that raged in this man's heart. The war of lust and covetousness and murder. It was in 2001 he was arrested and he now lives behind bars in a prison cell. He was charged with four counts of attempted aggravated murder and two counts of solicitation to commit aggravated murder. He was found guilty on four of the six counts, and today he serves his sentence in a prison cell. It shocked everyone who knew him. At his trial, it was revealed that he spent a lot of his time online in visiting sex sites and chat rooms and dating sites, even though he was married. 
He met a woman online who lived 200 miles from his home, and he told his wife that he needed to go on business to travel to this city. Of course, it was a lie. These business trips um, became an opportunity to meet the other woman and to begin an adulterous affair with her. Then he actually helped her move 200 miles to his hometown and set her up in an apartment um, in town. And now he was juggling his time between her and his wife. But he wasn't satisfied. While carrying on with her, he began a second adulterous relationship with another woman from another town. And now he was juggling his time between two adulterous relationships and his own wife and family. And then as he got more involved in these relationships, he began to think of, I've got too much on my plate, I need to get rid of one of these women. And the one he naturally thought of was his own wife. He wanted her dead. And he wrote to one of his mistresses about what it would be like if she could somehow work it out where she crashed her car into the car of his wife, thus killing his wife. And on and on the stories went. But still he was not satisfied. And so he took up with a third woman from another city at the same time as all of these relationships. And he began texting and messaging her And during the conversations as they were building up this relationship, he learned that she was an expert marksman, or a markswoman, better said. She knew how to use a gun. And so he, that piqued his interest and thought this might be a better way of killing his wife. And so he began to plot his wife's death, and he suggested that this woman should come to his town and kill his wife. And he gave the woman details of the layout of his house, how to break in, which doors were, were the lo- which doors locks weren't working too well, and then how to break in and how to make his wife suffer, and then kill her. He wanted both of, both his wife and his oldest daughter dead. But he asked the woman, "Please, when you do this, don't harm my dogs." And he had more concern and compassion for his dogs than he had for his wife and daughter. This third woman had enough sense to realize that he was dead serious about what he wanted to do and told him that she was going to turn him in to the police. At first he didn't believe her, but as she persisted that this is wrong and that she was going to turn him in, he offered her $10,000 to keep her mouth shut. Thankfully, she refused. And she turned, in, turned him in. At his trial, it came out that he had become dissatisfied with the wife that God had given to him. He revealed that the romance in his marriage had grown cold and that he was not communicating with her about his needs. And in frustration over his lack of intimacy with his wife, he chose to seek a listening ear and the affections of other women rather than working through these issues with his own wife. We could sum it up this way. I'm not satisfied. I'm discontent. I'm not happy with the woman God has given me. And just like the children of Israel who despised the manna, he lusted for for meat. He despised the gift from God and lusted for other women. He's in jail today 
because of his lust, his desire for pleasures. He's in jail today because of his covetousness. He wanted something that God was not really prepared to give to him, not being satisfied with the wife that God had given him. And he's in jail today because of murder in his heart. It all fits the passage. And this desire for pleasure in our hearts is the seed of a plant called covetousness. And covetousness, when it is full grown, produces the fruit, which is murder. When you hear this story, you may think, wow, that's just horrible. How could anyone ever think this way and be so unfaithful to his own wife? I would never do anything like this. But James is asking us the question about our relationship with the Lord. He reminds us here that we have an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are wed to Him. He is our husband. We are His bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And yet, we have wandering eyes and a heart that is unfaithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who is our lover then? James says that our lover is the world. Now, he's not talking about the planet Earth, and he's not talking about the people of the world. What he's talking about is the world system. And what is the world system? The world system is something that man has set up to make himself happy apart from God. Anything that makes you happy apart from God is the world. It includes, the Bible says, the lust of the eyes. And of course, that includes everything that the advertisers tell us we need or else we can't be happy. We can't live without these things. It includes the lust of the flesh, and that is every evil desire that comes from our own heart and the pride of life, including the lust to be better than everyone else. It is orchestrated. The world is orchestrated by Satan to squeeze us into the mold of where we become... um, satisfied with other things rather than God. And the world is like a lover that demands our attention and our affections and and our love. I think it's obvious, some of the things of the world are more obvious than others. The world's uh, drinking habits, the world's smoking habits, the drugs, the party life, and all of those things, those are the obvious things that are part of the world system, trying to make people happy apart from God. But it also includes the world's art, the world's music, the world's view of life and values. It includes our culture, our education, our job, our money, our possessions, investments, entertainment, the hunger for prestige or power or prominence, and even religion. Anything that takes control of our heart and makes us unfaithful to God, is the world. Just as the man in my story became completely irrational in his thinking uh, toward his wife and his children, so we become irrational in our thinking towards God, in our choices and in our decisions, because we have a lover called the world. The world wants us to take it, to embrace it, and to forsake our true love our love for God. But I want to tell you something. 
You pursue the world and the things of the world, and the world will leave you forsaken. You forsake God, and you pursue the world, and the world will ultimately forsake you. Guaranteed. When it is finished, and when the world is finished with you, it will abandon you. Have we become unfaithful to the one who loved us so much that he died on the cross for us? Our intimacy with the world shows the Lord that, our wor- that the world is our friend. And if the world is our friend, as James talks here, he says that then the Lord is our enemy. The man in my story became a friend and a lover of women, other women, and by default became an enemy to his wife. And when we become a friend of the world, by default, we become an enemy of the Lord. Um, James tells us in the same verse that the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. If James means the Holy Spirit here in verse 5, which I think he does, then the meaning here is that the Spirit of God is not the source of our lust, but he is the one who is longing for us to be fully in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. The Bible says, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And if you were then raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. And as Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. You can't serve God in money. can't do it. So what can be done for the adulterous man or woman in this passage? I have another friend. um, Knew him quite well growing up. He also left his wife and entered into an adulterous relationship with another woman. He even had the gall to bring his dirty laundry over to his wife's house every week for her to wash for him. And she did it. I do not know anybody on earth that is is as incredible as she is in that sense, that she is so loving and so forgiving. And she would wash his clothes every week, iron them, fold them, and make them ready for him to pick up. And the next week, he would dump off his dirty laundry all over again. And this went on for months and months. And all the while, she got down on her knees and she prayed. (laughs) And she prayed. It's amazing grace, quite honestly. Grace, God's undeserved favor, that a woman would treat her husband like this who was in an immoral relationship and was quite bold and um, blunt about the whole thing. She for, so she waited, and she prayed, and she waited, and she prayed, and finally he came to his senses. And with deep sorrow, he humbled himself, and he sought the forgiveness of God, and, she, and he sought her forgiveness as well. And, of course, she extended um, that forgiveness to him. But are we like that ourselves? Have we become so taken up, so enraptured with the world, and are we in an adulterous relationship with the world? Have we become unfaithful to the Lord? 
Do we do the same as my friend did when we come back and we ask the Lord for our daily food? Say, Lord, give me my daily food. Give me sleep tonight. Give me a job. Give me all these things. And yet we're in an adulterous relationship with the world. And what does the Lord do? He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. He sends the sunshine to all of us. And daily he provides for our needs. For he looks for that day when we too will come to our senses and with deep humility we will repent of our wayward hearts. The Bible says, But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. In Second Chronicles 7, it says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Or as James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And our tendency is, is when we are exposed to sin, our tendency is to fight is to go to fight or flight. One of those two responses. I'm going to resist this, I'm going to fight it, or I'm going to flee. That's not how we should respond. But rather, we should humble ourselves before the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord. And he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's the um, peace offering, if you will, what the Lord is holding out to us, the um, peace that he is offering to us if we repent and turn to him. What is the cure? What should our response be? Verse 7 through verse 10. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, And he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Do you want peace? These are the terms of peace here. There are seven of them. The Lord is holding out the olive branch to you and to those who will accept his terms, his terms of peace. The first one is submit to God. This is essential. It's it's really a military term, which means to render obedience to God. Obey him. We must be humble before the Lord. We must submit to him. Our prayer should be, Nevertheless, not my will, not my lusts, not my desires, but your will be done. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. It may mean a radical change in your life. If there are things in your heart and in your life right now where it's clear that you're really in an adulterous relationship with the world and against God, it's time to repent. It's time to turn to the Lord. It means that you must break up with your lover, the world. 
And it will definitely mean you must give up your covetousness and all of that. The second is resist the devil. Don't resist God. Resist the devil. Take a firm stand against the devil. Dig in your trenches against him. And when the devil comes and he whispers his lies in your ears, which he will do, you deserve this. You're better than this. You need more. All these things. You deserve this, really. As has been often said, if we got what we deserved, we'd all be in hell with the devil and the fallen angels. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Third, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How do we do that? We draw near to God in prayer and in the study of his word. We draw near to God when we repent of our sins and turn to him in humility. When we come to him that way, the wonderful thing is that he draws near to us. Some of us have wandered from the Lord. Come home. Come home. Come back to the Lord. Draw near to him. He's waiting, just like the prodigal's father with open arms. Number four, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Our hands speak uh, concerning the things that we do. We must forsake our sins. We must seek God's forgiveness and cleansing. The Bible is so wonderful. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Make it a point to keep short accounts with God. Ask him right now to forgive you and to make you into the man or the woman of God that he saved you to be. Number five, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Our hearts speak about the things we think, our motives, our desires, our affections. Are we guilty of being double-minded? Well, Lord, I, I love you, but I really love these things too. Are we guilty of being double-minded? Desiring the worldly things and the heavenly things. We want the best of both. We want our riches on earth and in heaven. Desire to have it all here and in heaven besides. We want to be carried through life on flowery beds of ease and have mansions for eternity. It shows that we're double-minded. Our hearts are not pure. James says we're adulteresses. Therefore, we need to purify our hearts. We want the Lord to be at the very center of our love and our affections. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. Number six, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, there are times in life when we need to sit up and we need to be serious about our spiritual life. And this is the time and this is the place. This is not a time for joking. It's not a time for laughing. It's not a time for mirth. When God speaks to our heart about the lack of love that we have for him, we need to sit up and take notice. When he talks to us about our waywardness, it's time to lament and mourn and weep. Our laughter, our partying should cease. The party should stop. The entertainment should end. And our hearts should be turned to gloom. We've offended God. 
We need to repent and turn to him. It's not a time of levity, giddiness, and flippancy. We must walk humbly with our God. And that's what it says next. Number seven, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. When the Lord exposes us and he takes his great searchlight, the word of God, and he searches every crevice of our heart, this is what our response should be. Humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. And when we do that, he will lift you up. It's really the pathway of brokenness. It's the pathway for personal revival and revival in the assembly. It's the road to revival. It's spelled right here right now. Let me just finish with this verse. What does the Lord want us to do? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly in His sight. We're going to sing a closing hymn. The hymn is, Search Me, O God. If the Lord is speaking to you this morning about your own heart, your own affections, your own love for Him, sing this song as a prayer to God. And I want to ask all of you today to think about what the Lord is saying to you personally. I want to ask you today to go out quietly, let people think. Go out quietly, go out humbly. Let the Spirit of God work in our hearts today. Ask the Lord to draw our hearts away from the world and back to Him. So the only one who loves us, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions after the meeting, I'd be happy to talk with you. Um, But let's go ahead. What is the, the number? What is it? 545. Let's go ahead and sing this as a closing hymn. And as I say, if this is the desire of your heart, pray this to the Lord. Let's go ahead and stand.
and make it wholly thine. Fill my poor heart with thy great, great divine. Take all my will, my passion, self, and pride. I now surrender, Lord, in me. O Holy Ghost, revival comes from Thee. Send a revival, start the work in Thy word declares Thou wilt supply our need for blessings. Let's just pray. Lord, we believe that you have spoken to us this morning and we think of how fickle our hearts are. And we cry out to you, Lord, for forgiveness, for cleansing, for purification, Lord. We ask you that, Lord, you might draw our affections to you, that we might put aside this lover, the world, and that we might follow hard after you, Lord. We just cry out to you that you would do a deep personal work in each one of our hearts in each one of our lives, Lord, that our affections, our love might supremely be to you. Lord, we do say in our own feeble way, we love you, Lord. We just pray, Lord, that it might show in the things that we do, the things that we think, the things that we say, in the affections of our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.